Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and a Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. Over the last couple of weeks, we've explored the recent Australian federal budget from a number of perspectives. We've spoken with Professor Frank Bongiorno and with Professor Paul Burke and Dr Elise Klein from here at the Crawford School. Today, we have a very special treat. We will be talking with the Treasurer, the Honourable Dr Jim Chalmers MP, and we will hear directly from him about the budget, what it means now and what it means for the future of our country. Dr Chalmers will be introduced by Professor Helen Sullivan, who is the Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific, and Dr Chalmers will then be in conversation with the Director of the Crawford School, Professor Janine O'Flynn. This is going to be a very special episode. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome everyone. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Let us begin by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. Um, and I'd like to pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, past and present. During this National Reconciliation Week, we come together to foster understanding, respect and unity as we all seek to achieve something not done in Australian history, delivering a voice to Parliament. I'm delighted that at the university, we have um, made a statement by the council saying that we unreservedly support enshrining an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice in the constitution, recognising its alignment with the university's national mission. My name is Helen Sullivan. I'm the Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific here at the Australian National University, and it's my great pleasure to open this event. Uh, the College of Asia and the Pacific, for those of you who don't know, is a unique collection of public policy area and disciplinary scholars uh, who are all focused on uh, both what's happening in the region, but also how we can address uh, particular major challenges facing the region and the world. Um, I need to let you all know that today's event is being recorded. It's not being live streamed, but it is being recorded for the uh, Policy Forum podcast. So you'll be able to, to re-listen to this uh, to make sure that you don't miss out on anything at all. Um, we've gathered here today for um, a unique, I think, and insightful and thought-provoking, it says, Dr. Chalmers, uh, event that goes beyond the figures, offering a deeper understanding of our nation's socioeconomic landscape. 
In this exclusive conversation, we have the privilege of hearing directly from the Honorable Dr. Jim Chalmers, MP, a distinguished policy figure in his own right and an esteemed alumnus of the Australian National University. It is noteworthy to mention, and we were just reflecting um, outside, that Dr. Chalmers has graced Crawford stage many times before, um, not least in a, a special event for us in November 2017. On that occasion, he passionately argued for a more active, progressive, and entrepreneurial approach to the finance department portfolio, emphasizing the importance of fresh thinking and value for money in Australia's fiscal rules and plans. Dr. Chalmers has an impressive background with a PhD in political science from the ANU and a first-class honors degree in public policy from Griffith University. As the treasurer, he has played a vital role in shaping our nation's fiscal policies and guiding us through economic challenges. Today, we eagerly anticipate Dr. Chalmers' speech as he sheds light on the intricacies of the budget, offering valuable perspectives into the future direction of our society. After Dr. Chalmers' speech, Professor Janino Flynn, the director of the Crawford School of Public Policy, will engage in an, a dialogue with the treasurer, posing a series of questions to tease out some major themes. Um, then, unfortunately, Dr. Chalmers will have to leave us to head back to Parliament to pass the budget. So that's a pretty good excuse. <laughs> but we will have the opportunity then for a, an in-depth Q&A session with a panel of distinguished experts from the ANU. Uh, these experts bring a wealth of knowledge and expertise, and they will provide further analysis and context to help us understand the implications and potential ramifications of the budgetary decisions. We are honoured to host such an event as it exemplifies the commitment of Crawford School of Public Policy to foster robust public debate and vital discussions relevant to both the Australian context and the global community. Um, but uh, with a special welcome to our particularly young guest up at the back, um, a future student, I've no doubt, um, uh, please would you join me in giving a very warm welcome to the Honourable Dr Jim Chalmers. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for the opportunity to spend uh, Wednesday morning of a sitting week with you here at the Crawford School. Uh, I begin uh, by acknowledging the Ngunnawal and the Ngambri people, their elders, customs and traditions. And I really wanted to thank you and the university for the way that you have embraced uh, this really historic opportunity that we have uh, to move forward together as a country in a spirit of unity and respect. Uh, it's a real buzz to be back at the ANU. I'm absolutely delighted to be back here. This place has a really special place in my heart. I uh, spent a few years here in the early 2000s and try to come back as frequently as you'll have me. Uh, and even in the context of the budget, the last two budgets, I've had a sort of a Sunday pre-budget ritual, which is to spend time on campus. I normally run through the campus on the Sunday afternoon uh, before the Tuesday night budget. And when I ran through here, a few weeks ago on that Sunday afternoon, I sent a text message to my PhD supervisor, John Warhurst, who would be well known to many of you here, uh, and I said to him then uh, how much I appreciated the opportunities that this place uh, has afforded me over time, and John in particular. Uh, but it is such a wonderful, wonderful place, and I know that you know that, but I just want you to know that we know it too, uh, those of us who are fortunate to have spent time here uh, over the years. Now, today's a really great opportunity uh, to um, spend time with you to talk about the budget. I wanted to thank uh, Janine and Helen uh, for the invitation and the panel. 
I'm told the panel will speak about this presentation after I leave, which makes me very nervous. Um, but I appreciate the, such a distinguished panel for taking part as well, and I really do appreciate the invitation. And Janine and I got to spend some time last week as well to talk about uh, today's uh, presentation. Uh, really what I wanted to do today, because I, I think you get the most value out of the back and forth in the discussion, is I want to spend five or six minutes uh, really trying to unlock for you the logic that underpins the budget. Now, you've seen the different parts of the budget by now. You've read uh, all of the coverage and you've seen uh, where the kind of pressure points are in the parliament. You've seen where the political uh, battle has been joined. You've seen some of the other parts as well. So really what I wanted to do to you, with you today is to talk you through the logic that underpins it uh, in the hope that that provides a kind of a foundation for some of the discussion that comes uh, afterwards. And really the way that I wanted to encourage you to think about this budget, in if it's a budget in a sentence, it's a budget that's in the service of our immediate priorities and our generational responsibilities. And by that I mean it tries to do what we can to help people through a difficult period now at the same time as we lay the foundations for future growth the right kind of growth in our economy after that as well. And so there's really three quite simple ways to understand uh, how the, uh, the government, particularly the Cabinet, the Expenditure Review Committee, the Prime Minister, um, my wonderful colleague, your Senator, Katie Gallagher, how we grappled with and how we tried to build the scaffolding for this budget from, and then all of the decisions kind of fit uh, within that. So there's three broad ways to unlock the logic behind the budget. Uh, the first one is to understand the influences on the budget. Uh, the first one, these are kind of the macro influences on the budget, the constraints that we were working within when it comes to the economic conditions that we confront in the first half of 2023. And obviously the first most important one is inflation. Uh, that is still the defining challenge in our economy even as it moderates, peaked around uh, in the sevens around Christmas time, has been moderating since then. We'll get a monthly read today, which might bounce around a little bit. Uh, but inflation is moderating, but more persistent than we'd like it to be, higher than we'd like for longer than we'd like, and still the defining influence on our economy and therefore on our plan. Uh, the second one is the beginnings of a slowdown in our economy. Uh, Treasury's forecasting growth of only about 1.5% uh, over in next uh, financial year. We're already seeing the beginnings, I think, whether it's the construction numbers yesterday, a couple of very weak retail figures, the unemployment rates ticking up a little bit, but from uh, extraordinary lows. I think we are seeing the beginning of the slowdown that the Treasury, the Reserve Bank and the private forecasters are all anticipating. And so that was an influence too. Uh, because even though we've got this substantial inflation challenge in our economy right now, we've also got, I think, enough uh, of the front end of something troubling when it comes to slowdown in the economy as the inevitable consequence largely of two things, higher interest rates and the global slowdown as well. In Treasury speak, the risks are tilted to the downside, as Stephen Kennedy said yesterday in the estimates. And so obviously that's a big part of our thinking as we put the budget together as well. And the third one, and this is a bit more positive in, in a way, uh, is the combination of what's happening in the labour market, uh, extraordinarily low unemployment rate in the middle threes, even though it's ticked up a little bit in the last month, uh, combined with the welcome beginnings of wages growth. Uh, those two things together account for 40% of the upgrade in revenue in the budget. 40% uh, is the labour market. And then about 20% of the upgrade in revenue in the budget is from higher commodity prices. 
so which I've got up there as exports, but really I mean the combination of a much stronger labour market than anticipated and stronger commodity prices than anticipated is driving uh, what is really quite a substantial improvement in the budget, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So those are the key influences. Uh, next we get to the main components of the budget. So uh, first of all, the cost of living package, uh, which is, has a number of elements, $14.6 billion, big emphasis on the three big drivers, I think, of cost of living pressure at the moment, out-of-pocket health costs, uh, rent uh, and energy were the three things that we tried to come at. And what we tried to do there, what we tried to grapple with there, is how can we provide some assistance for people without making the inflation challenge worse? How do we provide some help which is very targeted uh, targeted in an uh, income sense but also targeted to those three areas where I think the pressures are most acute. How do we do that without making the job of the Independent Reserve Bank harder? Uh, second bit is I've called up there transitions and growth and really what I mean here is how can we deal with those near-term issues that I've just talked about at the same time as we lay the foundations, particularly when it comes to energy, uh, whether it's the uh, big investments, big new investments in hydrogen, uh, some of the other measures uh, in the budget, really the combination of energy, technology and people and skills is into our way of thinking how we lay the foundations for future growth. And how we do that really there is to recognise there are a number of big trends and transitions happening in our economy right now. Uh, obviously the industrial composition of our economy is changing with a bigger emphasis on the care economy. We've got the big energy shift, which I'm sure Frank and others will want to talk about, uh, this morning as well, uh, and we've got the big technological shift, uh, AI and all the rest of it, and our challenge there is to make sure that technological change can work for us, not against us, and a big part of that is making sure we've got the skills to adapt and adopt technology so that we can shape our own future. So that's the second part of the budget. The third part uh, goes to fiscal buffers. I mentioned before the big revenue upgrade in the budget uh, that obviously is uh, very important and very welcome, but what matters there is what you do with it. And what we tried to do is to provide the cost of living help and invest in the future, but also bank uh, a huge proportion of the upward revision to revenue, 87% over two budgets of the upward revision to revenue we've banked to the bottom line. And we've done that for a couple of reasons. First of all, until recently, the fastest growing cost in the budget was actually the interest on our debt. And so what we've been able to do in this budget is avoid about $80 billion in interest debt, uh, uh, debt interest over the medium term. Uh, and also we think we need to get the budget in much better nick to rebuild some of the buffers for uh, what might be a difficult period ahead. And so that's really the kind of third component of it. Uh, the last thing before we get into the discussion, the last set of uh, ways to unlock the logic of the budget is to think about um, the budget in May 2023, not as a kind of standalone, self-contained piece of work, but to think about it as uh, budgets and all of the other things that we're trying to do as a government uh, as staging points uh, rather than self-contained moments in time. I don't know when it kind of changed, but I've been knocking around Parliament House thinking about budgets for a couple of decades now, and it sort of feels like people think that budgets are, you know, an event uh, or, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, um, a super kind of personalised thing that happens and then people move on and think about all the other things that governments do. And what we've tried to do as a government, trying to be more inclusive about it in our Cabinet, 
recognising the way that Anthony leads his team is what we've tried to do is to say, well, budgets are part of a story. They're not the story. They're not the beginning and the end of a story. They're part of a story. They're a chapter, or I call it a staging point of progress. And if you think about it that way, the first budget in October last year was really about uh, resetting uh, the uh, forecasts, you know, making sure we had a more realistic assessment of the economy and the fiscal situation, uh, but also uh, budgeting for and implementing the commitments we took to the 2022 election. That was largely the story of the October budget. This budget I've described to you in some detail. Uh, And now we've got a heap of work uh, ahead of us. You know, whether it is uh, the work on uh, housing, the housing accord and the associated parts, whether it's the investor roundtables that I've convened to talk about energy and housing and technology, uh, whether it's the migration review, we're going to renovate the productivity commission, we've got a heap of work to do on the care economy, uh, we've got an intergenerational report, a wellbeing framework, uh, a whole bunch of work that happens now. And so really the last thing I'll say before we have a chat, Janine, is to say that I would encourage you If you think about these kind of nine ways to unlock the logic of the budget, really uh, now that we have uh, released the uh, May budget for this year, we are very focused on the work that happens now, not just legislating it in the parliament, as uh, Helen pointed out a moment ago, but also making sure that we keep the wheels turning on some of the issues uh, that we'll have a chat about today. Uh, But thanks for that. I look forward to talking with Janine uh, in a minute. Thank you. Thanks very much, Twitter, um, for sharing your opening remarks and you get us off to a great start. And I'd particularly like to dig into not just the year ahead but perhaps the years ahead and um, and particularly talk about sort of some of the big ideas that have been shaping your thinking, not just in the budget but um, broadly about governing during this what might be considered quite a tumultuous um, time. So you recently delivered your second budget, but I think you've worked on 17 budgets, if my number, numbers are, are right. Some of them I worked against, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, sorry. You've worked adjacent to 17 <laughs> budgets. Um, and as we know, every budget reflects careful deliberation and choices, but it also gives us great insight into what's happening right now, and you, you spoke about that, um, our future, but also our values. In your essay for the monthly earlier this year, you argued, our mission is to redefine and reform our economy and institutions in ways that make our people and communities more resilient and our society and democracy stronger as well. In making the case for that, you drew on a fairly broad range of writers from Rubini, who paints quite a horror story of the future, I might might say, um, to Mariano Mazzucato, who talks about the role of government as being more than market fixer and as a creator of public value. In that piece, you also argue that our mental models have not adapted to the crises that we're confronting, and you make the case for values-based capitalism. So can I ask you to reflect on what some of those big ideas are? You talked about the influences of sort of the immediate um, budgetary challenges, but what are those big ideas that are really shaping that mission as you see it? And how do you think our mental models need to change to deal with this complex world? Yeah, thanks for that. And thanks for engaging with the the essay as well. I wrote that essay because it felt to me like in a decade and a half we've faced three big economic crises. Uh, The GFC, obviously, uh, the pandemic, and now we've got this uh, inflation risk and the risk of a hard landing around the world. And it felt strange to me that it didn't feel like people in my line of work had necessarily completely absorbed the lessons of those three sets of crises. And and I'm attracted to Rabini because, not just because (laughs) 
Uh, he picked the, uh, the GFC better than most back in, back in the day. Um, but also because I do think that there is this sense of fragility uh, and this sense of risk and uncertainty. Uh, and if there's a, a job of government, uh, particularly a job of a good government, it is to recognise uh, the pressure that people are under and societies are under and countries are under uh, and to try and work out how we strengthen ourselves in a way that makes us more robust and more resilient. Uh, and my frustration really for a long time now, even before I was knocking around here as a PhD student, is it's always seemed strange to me that we think about our economy over here and we think about our society over here. Uh, and sometimes worse than that, uh, we kind of accept that we can have an economic model uh, which works against the interests of our society and then we kind of triage the, the, the problems over here. Whereas what the essay tries to do is to say if we can learn one thing from a really difficult past decade and a half, maybe we could try and work out how do we align what we want in our economy with what we want in our society. Uh, and that feeds a lot of the work that we do, even in this, if I had longer to talk to you about the budget, you know, I would point out uh, that in that middle kind of um, uh, um, row about the components of the budget, really in all of those elements, we tried to say, how can we make this particularly uh, relevant and resonant for women? How can we make yep. it how can we think about it in the wellbeing framework and that context? Uh, how can we have place-based initiatives in communities like the one that I grew up in, which recognises that national government policy doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't have the same impact everywhere? Uh, these sorts of things. And so that's how some of the thinking behind the essay, I, I hope, drives the way that we engage and grapple with some of these challenges. Yeah. But you did push us, I think, in, in that essay to really think about the world differently as well. You're saying some of our mental models that have been driving our policy choices are broken. They don't work for the world that we live in, but we don't seem to have really moved on from that yet. So you were challenging us in some ways to, to really conceptualise the world in a different way. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to make this a kind of a partisan reflection, but I, I feel like this kind of neoliberalism, um, which has been dominant um, for a long time around the world, uh, I feel like people just kind of cling to that because of the absence of something yes. equally coherent. Yeah. Uh, and I think there is something coherent in an alternative that says um, how do we take the best of our capitalism and make it work in the service of our society? And it was written wrongly, it was caricatured wrongly as this kind of call to go back to some kind of 1950s model where people in offices like mine direct everything. It was actually the opposite of that. My thing and why it shouldn't be especially controversial, including in the Financial Review and the Australian and elsewhere, is I think we should have better designed and better informed markets. Uh, I think we should align what we want for our economy and what we want for our society and we should be better at working together to achieve those ends, more collaboration between government and business. And so that's, I don't think that's especially controversial but the fact that it, it, it was received that way I think goes to the challenge that we have. You know, a lot of people for a long time have been writing the same stuff uh, and it hasn't recognised um, what twos would call the polycrises uh, and what others have described, Rubini and others have described, we need to try and work out how can we learn from the last 15 years to deliver a new generation of growth and prosperity that includes more people. Yeah. I mean, I might move on to this issue of wellbeing, and you mentioned it briefly in your, your remarks. And 
um, an important thing that came out of your National Press Club address following the budget was around progress. And certainly you've talked about staging points today and this this idea that not everything's going to happen overnight and that we're on a journey together and there's points along that. And you certainly made um, a big point about this idea of progress, like how do we sort of track progress. Um, since becoming Treasurer, you've made the case for measuring what matters and also a wellbeing approach to budgeting, which in some ways encapsulates some of those points that you've just been making. And a detailed report of those measures will be anticipated by many people, of course, as, as it emerges. But can you give us some insight into the focus on wellbeing um, and also this importance of progress in how that's shaping your, your thinking? Yeah, I'm looking forward to releasing the wellbeing framework in, in the next couple of months. Uh, and we deliberately separated it from uh, the May budget because we didn't want it to get lost and also because we want to demonstrate that caring about how we measure progress in our society and in our economy doesn't come, it's not instead of all of the traditional ways that we measure unemployment, GDP and all of that. We don't really have to choose between one or the other. Uh, and so the wellbeing framework is really about how do we take the best of what's happened around the world, how do we take world's best practice and innovate a little uh, to come up with a set of measures which measure the sorts of things that we care about as a society and how do we make tre the Treasury Department kind of central to that effort. Um, and to be honest with you, I've been really quite surprised by the appetite for this. You know, when I, I gave a speech in opposition a few years ago, uh, and we were inundated uh, with um, calls and emails from around Australia and around the world really interested in how Australia might grapple with the sense of well-being, how we might add to the traditional economic indicators and how we could me measure progress over time. And so it's been quite an eye-opener, uh, the, the amount of appetite for it. I'm not unrealistic about it. You know, obviously when we release it, there'll be people who want to pull it apart and all the rest of it. That's probably a good thing too and we'll get better at it over time. Uh, but this first opportunity in the middle of this year, I think, is a good way of trying to refocus the whole show, uh, not just on all the traditional ways we measure economic progress, but what do we really care about as a society and how do we track it? How do we know when we're failing and need to do better? Uh, how do we know where we're succeeding? Um, and that's really the motivation behind it. Thanks. You mentioned before that you you um, have a, a sort of soft spot in your heart for the ANU and I wonder if I can take you back a little bit in time. Um, I think it was 2004 you completed your thesis here, um, a fantastic Generation X PhD, I might say. This is also the year mine, <laughs> mine was done. Yours would have been much uh, better than mine. Uh, I, well, I've read yours and yours was fabulous, so um, I, I have read it. And I've, I said to you the other day, I've examined many PhD theses, so it was, um, it was a great and very insightful insightful one. Um, in that, for those who don't know, you explored the leadership style of the former Prime Minister, Paul Keating, and you mentioned Professor John Warhurst, who um, would have been here if he wasn't overseas today to, to see you. In the thesis, you made the case that Prime Minister Keating saw leadership as having a conversation with the public, and you quote him as saying, leadership is not about being popular, it's about being right, and it's about being strong. You stressed that his leadership had been about getting the consent of the public and the Cabinet, Almost 20 years later, how has your sense of leadership changed? Um, does that model still work? And what revisions would you make to your central thesis? You might want to get comfy. Um, <laughs> first of all, I, I, I've read that Placido Domingo speech hundreds of times. I, I cannot believe that 
the power of some of those words. And I mean, it was seen as a shot at Bob at the time, which is obviously not uh, the bit I like about it. But there is so much in that speech that I find just really quite motivating. Uh, that Placido Domingo speech, largely off the cuff around the corner here, um, an unbelievable piece of um, uh, oratory. Uh, and really the main element of it is what is leadership for? Uh, and that was not kind of central to the thesis I wrote here but central to my thinking mm-hmm. about wanting to do that thesis here, at PH- uh, that PhD here at the ANU. And the thing I like about it is... Um, this sense that at some point in politics, you know, when you first get involved in it, you have to kind of learn how the machinery of it works and how the pieces interact with each other. And most people that I work closely with, strangely, and might seem strange to you, become kind of more idealistic over time rather than less. People think that politics kind of wears you down, but you kind of discover the possibilities of it over time. Uh, and at some point you wake up and you realise if you wander around the country chasing applause and adulation, A, it's not going to come, or it's not going to come in an in a ongoing way. You know, it's fleeting. Um, and secondly, the best way for people to respect you is to try and take the right reasons for, take the right decisions for the right reasons and let the political cards fall where they may. Um, and that's kind of how I feel about it, I'm not over the top about it, I'm not going to... Um, uh, you know, you have to work within a framework. Um, but I think really that speech is about that. How do we make the right decisions? How do we look far into the future? And how can we make a contribution that we are, uh, that we are proud of? Um, and so I, I think that, that piece of thinking from Paul, I still talk to Paul a lot. Uh, obviously I disagree with some of his recent comments about the colleagues and I've said that publicly, but the way that Paul engages with leadership I think is very useful to us. I might um, just roll on into another question about leadership and in important decisions. As um, Helen mentioned, it's Reconciliation Week here in Australia and we're here on Ngunnawal and Ngambri lands today. The theme for reconciliation this week is be a voice for your um, generations, be a voice for generations. In your recent speech at the Press Club, you spoke about Australia being a country gaining confidence um, with choices that we take and you referred to the Indigenous voice to Parliament as, and I'll quote you, a gift we seek to bestow onto the next generation of Australians to do the work, to do what seems difficult now, a chance for us to rise to the moment, having the confidence and the courage to shape the future of our terms and in our interests. What does the voice mean at this moment in history for us? I think we should apply a generational lens to it Um, and much better than that uh, part that you kindly quoted from my press club speech. My my friend Tim Watts was on Q&A last night. Uh, and a member for Jellybrand, uh, and he spoke about the remarkable generosity at the core of the voice um, after all of our history um, to have this opportunity to do something which people will uh, recognise and appreciate in generations down the track I think really is a remarkable chance for us to do something wonderful together. Uh, and... Um, you know, from time to time people will say, well, the voice will distract you from, you know, some of these things that we've already talked about this morning. I don't see it that way. I see it as one and the same. If we strengthen our institutions, we strengthen our sense of ourselves, we get things right in an intergenerational sense, then some of these other opportunities and decisions become easier, not harder. 
One of the things that you mentioned just um, earlier, but you also have has emerged as an important theme, sort of shaping your thinking. Um, you mentioned the importance of this in the National Press Club speech around collaboration and partnership, highlighting your personal collaboration with colleagues, particularly with the finance minister, and also stressing the importance of working with the Australian Public Service in a much more partnership mode. Um, and in your essay for the monthly, you stressed collaboration and partnership as keys to shaping a better society and essential to the idea of values-based capitalism, which you were writing about. Why have these ideas become so powerful in shaping your agenda? I just think we give ourselves a better chance of succeeding if we try and work out where the common ground is. I mean, that's been the secret to the quite remarkable work that Anthony and Penny and Don and Richard have done on the international stage and are doing. Uh, it's a secret to a lot of the engagement we have with uh, the employers and the investors is to not be unrealistic about the things that we disagree on but to try and find uh, common ground where we can. And it's also to recognise that, um, I mean, I, I feel quite personally lucky. I've got, I get to work with the Treasury Department, unbelievable group of people, extremely well led by Stephen Kennedy that I've known for a couple of decades. Uh, I get to work with Katie Gallagher, who I think I said at the press club, you know, I've never worked with a better person, uh, a more kind of generous, uh, selfless person than, than Katie Gallagher. And so why wouldn't you want to work with people? You've got, a, you've got an investment community that's engaged on energy and technology and place-based disadvantage. Why wouldn't you take that opportunity? You get to work with Katie and Stephen and Jenny Wilkinson and a Prime Minister that lets us do our jobs. Why wouldn't you make the most of that? Um, and you've got a, a community which is um, relatively engaged in some of these big questions. And the thing that I, I could have said in re- relation to your question about Paul and the Placido Domingo speech, one of the things I take from him, and that was in that speech as well, uh, is that the Treasurer's role sometimes is to kind of be the explainer-in-chief, to try and explain to people where they fit into a story of whether it's economic vulnerability or economic yeah. success is to try and tell a story to people and explain to people where they fit into that Uh, and working with as many people as you can to engage as many people as you can seems to me to be, if you made a list, a short list of the responsibilities of the Treasurer, I think that would be one of them. You closed out your essay in the monthly with the following um, quote, our generation of policymakers and leaders faces different challenges too. And here we can't just retrofit old agendas or retrace the steps of our heroes to address them. We make our own way across the river, rock hopping and wading through the peril and poly crisis of 2023. Today here in the audience we've got many um, students, alumni um, and perhaps our next generation of policymakers and leaders. What would be your advice to them? I think build a constituency for your work. Uh, and by that I mean there are so many opportunities, particularly being here at the ANU and at Crawford. Uh, people care about what you think and people care about what you write and produce. Uh, and I, so I think if you're at the relatively early stages <coughs> of your contribution, you be thinking about how do you build a constituency for that? And it depends, obviously it's different depending on what kind of things you work on, <coughs> whether it's parliamentary committees, ministers' offices, the public service in a public sense, media, social media, uh, I think it's worth trying to work out how do you build a, as big a possible constituency for your work, audience for your work, so that it's impactful. Um, and also, and, and again, there's a bit of kind of personal learning in this, 
One of the great things about universities and one of the great things about this university and Griffith University as well uh, is this kind of um, intergenerational generosity that exists in places like this where people who have been here for a while, um, you know, are prepared, <coughs> excuse me, to invest in the people that come after them, you know, make the most of those kind of mentoring relationships and then obviously pay it forward the people that come after you as well. I was really lucky. John Warhurst here, Pat Weller, John Wano at Griffith. Uh, I had the late, great uh, David Adams here as well. I had John Hart. He's a wonderful guy. Uh, and really all of those people have been so helpful. Glyn Davis, who's a relatively influential person in this town now running the public service. All of these people were prepared to help. Uh, and so I think part of building a constituency for your work is making the most out of those kind of, I don't want to call them vertical relationships that exist in universities, but you know what I mean. There is a generosity, I think, in universities. And if you're relatively new to this, uh, I would really encourage you to make the most of it. I wouldn't have had the opportunities I've had were it not for the generosity of people who'd been doing the things that I wanted to do for a long longer. Uh, and so make the most of that as well. I'm conscious I've got you for about two more minutes. So I've got my final question, um, which hopefully we can end on an, on an optimistic um, sort of note. In your essay, The Monthly, you really stressed this, this challenge of vulnerability and you talked a little bit about it as well today and how a series of crises means that the world is entering into, as you said, perilous white water. You specifically point to Rubini's discussion of the numerous interconnecting mega threats which have the potential to create his words, not mine, a dystopian future um, and a reading of which would turn us all into pessimists and as Generation X people, we're hardwired supposedly to be cynical. Um, but from your essay, I also took an incredible message of pragmatism and optimism and you stress the importance of not only recognising the reality of our times that we live in but also the importance of resilience and confidence. So just as we close off today, I wonder if I can ask you what is it that you're optimistic about in our future? Well, I think the best thing about Australians is that combination of optimism and realism. People are, I am and Australians broadly are optimistic but realistic. Uh, they know that we have our fair share of things to contend with right now, um, but I think typically we are optimistic that we will get through uh, and that can never be confused with or can never become complacency. Uh, but optimism, I think, is the kind of engine that runs the place in lots of ways. And the reason I am personally optimistic about our economy and our society is because if you, if you made a list of things, if you recognise we've had you know, three decades of expansion in our economy, the envy of the world came to an end during the pandemic, if you recognise next that what drove those 30 years of prosperity will not be exactly the same things that drive the next 30 years of prosperity. I think that's broadly agreed. And if you sat down and made a list and said, okay, these are the things that will determine whether nations fail or succeed in the new world, the post-pandemic world, the post, you know, after these three crises we've had in 15 years. And those three things would be, can you look after people? You know, can you, have, can you build the kind of workforce in the care economy that looks out for each other and looks after each other, number one? Secondly, can we get good at having the sort of people who are smart enough, uh, flexible enough uh, to adapt and adopt technology so we shape our own future? And the third one would be how can you turn this remarkable, vast, these vast industrial and economic opportunities of cleaner and cheaper energy 
can you turn that into something um, meaningful in your economy and your society? And if you came up with a country that was the best place to do those three things, it would genuinely probably be us. Um, on energy, we've got the most remarkable opportunities. Uh, on technology, we've got a big chance here to be the best in the world at adapting and adopting technology. Uh, and particularly on the first one, I mean, the whole place is built in one way or another on looking out for each other and looking after each other. And so the care economy seems to be uh, perfectly set up for Australians to succeed there as well. And so that, that's what makes me optimistic. If you take a big, big step back from the day-to-day and budget-to-budget and all the rest of it, and you try and work out, and maybe your lists would be a little bit different to my list of three things, but I think those three things will determine whether we're really good for another 30 years or whether we just kind of muddle through. Um, And it's hard to imagine a list of three things that Australians are better placed to do well uh, to to tick each of those boxes, and so that's what makes me optimistic. Treasurer, thanks so much for joining us here this morning at the Crawford School. It's wonderful to have you back on the campus Um, I know you have to rush back to Parliament now, but you told us that you love running on the campus and I think I made a promise to you the other day. Um, winter will set in and as it gets colder and colder, so we got you your own ANU hoodie. Well, um, I can't, not for marketing purposes, but um, I, can't, I cannot issue you with a student card. I'm sure we can react, reactivate your student card. It will be sitting there for you at any stage. Um, but we've just got your hoodie so that when you're running on those cold winter mornings across the campus, you can uh, remember that, of course, you're always our ANU alumni. So um, thank you very much. I know you have to rush back, but it was lovely to have you here and we look forward to having you again really soon. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you. Much. It was really lovely to have you. you. There you go. You. <laughs> we sized you up. Thanks, so <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, everyone. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A little uh, stage uh, reconstruction here and uh, the Treasurer exits. It's my pleasure to invite our expert panellists to come and join us um, here today. Our experts span a a range of of areas of expertise across the Crawford School. I'm not going to do long introductions to our experts today because we'll take up all of the time talking about um, their expertise. But please, please join me in um, welcoming, welcoming them here today. Um, we're going to dig into the budget. Um, you can see up here I've got their, their photos and a little bit about their expertise when we're ready to go for questions. Um, but colleagues, I'm really key, very keen to hear your headline take on the budget and anything that came up in the Treasurer's remarks um, today. And then we'll have a little bit of time for questions as well. So, um, Associate Professor Michael D. Francesco, you're our residential, um, our resident, sorry, public finance management expert. What was your big takeaway from the budget this year? Um, well, I'm going to take a slightly different tack on this from uh, my fellow panellists who I, I think are likely to be focusing on um, the trends and impacts of the decisions and the ex- and, and expenditure. Um, I'm actually going to dive into the mechanics 
the reason I'm going to dive into the mechanics is because those mechanics are incredibly important uh, for the types of uh, things that I think most of my panelists are going to talk about. There are two things which I think are important, not just from this budget, but also from the previous budget, uh, which are about institutional settings. And those institutional settings uh, go to how budget decision-making and policy-making is framed. Um, and I'll talk about that in a little bit more detail as we go along, but those two things, one of which was referred to by the Treasurer, uh, was the wellbeing framework. Um, this is actually quite a significant undertaking uh, within the Australian context, uh, as he indicated when he gave his uh, uh, speech, which was flagging the importance of this. He was un uh, unfortunately uh, somewhat lampooned by the then Treasurer, um, and it was unfortunate in that this notion of well-being has become quite orthodox uh, in the way that other jurisdictions go about framing their budgetary decision-making. Uh, and so it is something that I'm also very happy to talk about in terms of um, comparative experience. The other thing, and this is where I'll, where I'll end, uh, is the announcement about evaluation uh, and the need for a dedicated program evaluation function, which is now going to be located in the Treasury. Uh, in the treasury. Again, I'll also speak about that, but I'll, I'll do so through the lens of administrative history. Does anyone know what this year is the anniversary of? 35 years since the Hawke Cabinet approved the evaluation strategy, which was then, at the time, one of the most systematic approaches to program evaluation uh, undertaken, uh, uh, and it is something that we should be looking back to for lessons. I'll end there. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Next, um, Kristen, I might come to you. You're our resident research fellow in the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute, and I know that you've had a very keen interest in evaluation. What was it that caught your attention this time around? Yeah, uh, similar to Michael, I was very pleased to hear that there was going to be a centre for evaluation established within the Treasury over the last five and a half years since I've been in Australia, it's been fantastic to see the advances in administrative data that have been made available to researchers and also public servants. Really fantastic space to work in. On that same token, I'd say one of the weaknesses I saw or, or fear of this announcement has to do with the fact that it's located within the Treasury. And I think it would have been better place to be independent. Saying this from my own experience and that of other colleagues, my fear is that sometimes when you do do work in collaboration with the public service, it never sees the light of day because unfortunately the, the conclusions are often too politically contentious. So um, I hope that isn't what happens, but I suspect that's the reality in which we'll find ourselves. So I guess I'll just uh, conclude to say if that's the reality that we find ourselves in, what can we do about it? Well, I think what we can do is continue to make advances and expand the access to administrative data to researchers because we're not constrained by what's politically contentious um, or not. We just get the data to the analysis and put it out there for the world to use. Thanks. Thanks, Kristen. Um, Professor Sharon Bessel, I wonder if I can come to you. You're the director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Policy and Inequality Research Centre. Um, you've had your keen eye across a range of issues in the budget. What did you take away this time around? Thanks, Janine. So I wanted to begin um, with, with sharing uh, a story. Um, last year, as part of our research on child poverty, I interviewed a single mum whose daughter was seven, and this mum was living in fear of what would happen when her daughter turned eight. She also described the pain of the way in which she'd been described in political narratives. And as she talked about really having enough food to give her daughter of hunger and of the stress 
of being on the precipice of losing her house, she started to cry. And she looked directly at me and I could see the pain, the anger and the shame that she had been made to feel because of her situation. And she said, I'm not Alina. I don't want a handout. I just need some help. I think what this budget has done is to begin to shift the political narrative in ways that really matter, in beginning to frame people with dignity and with care and to recognise that people are entitled to support when they need it. And that shift in language really matters. I don't think we can underestimate how important that is. However, the very small increase to working age benefits that were included in the budget mean that many people who are living in deep hardship prior to the budget will continue to be living in deep hardship after the budget. Some of the cost of living measures are really going to help. The changes to single parent payment are really going to make a difference for many children and their families. The changes to Medicare, I think, can be seen as the beginning of some systemic reforms that are essential um, around the kinds of services that we all need, but perhaps they don't represent a shift towards preventative health or a coordinated approach to healthcare that we, we may need. The budget, I think, doesn't get to the structural inequalities that are leaving so many children growing up in poverty in this country. But as the Treasurer noted today, a budget isn't an event, it's about progress. And this budget, I think, may be the beginnings on which we can build some foundations and create the possibility of ending child poverty in this wealthy country, but genuinely responding to the things that people need to lead a decent life. Thanks, Sharon. Um, perhaps we'll pick up on that a little bit more with you, uh, Professor Peter Whiteford. You're serving as a member of the Interim Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee and part of your role has been to provide direct advice <laughs> to government on um, and what, what it might do. What's your assessment of the budget, Peter? Uh, yeah, well, um, on the Interim Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee, along with Ben Phillips from the CSRM, at ANU, um, we argued that job seeker and related payments um, should be increased back to 90% of the pension level. This is, this is an interim recommendation in the sense that we had a very short period of time to analyse um, uh, levels of payments. So we, as far as possible, replicated what happened in the Harmer review back in 2009. Um, that would have involved an increase of $256 a fortnight um, in the base rates of adult payments. Um, we also argued for a substantial increase in Commonwealth rent assistance, um, along with about 36 other recommendations. Um, now, so the increase of $40 a fortnight um, is obviously a long, long way below uh, our recommended level. Um, however, as uh, Sharon's just pointed out, the, um, the change to parenting payment, uh, single, uh, is actually uh, an increase for the people who will benefit from it directly of about $205 a fortnight, or um, to take the case of uh, the example Sharon gave, what would have been a loss of $205 a fortnight um, uh, for many people. Um, and um, for older job seeker, um, there's an increase for people over the age of 55, uh, which hopefully I've calculated correctly is about $90 a fortnight. Uh, and then there's an increase in rent assistance. The other thing that is important, I think, is that um, is a lot of the work that's going into the, the care economy 
by which I include the changes to Medicare and the changes to pharmaceutical benefits. Um, we had people in our focus groups for the Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee uh, who really, health issues are really, really important for people on payments. Um, something like 400,000 of the um, people on JobSeeker have reduced capacity to work, either because of parenting responsibilities or health issues. Um, so I see this as... Um, just the beginning. It's a positive beginning, um, uh, not only in Social Security but in other areas, but there's still a long way to go to restore the adequacy of our Social Security system. Thanks, Peter. Um, Frank, I wonder if we can go to you. You're the head of energy at the ANU Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, and you've been looking at some of these big um, decisions and announcements in, in the budget. Um, what's your big message coming out of the budget? And my spiritual home is, of course, Crawford School. Um, <laughs> so, look, um, I'd also put the emphasis on support for low-income earners. Uh, if, there's, if there's, you know, something that could derail progress for Australia in the future, and we noted the Treasurer ending on that positive note of opportunity, there's something that could derail it. I think it could be inequality, right, which is uh, on, on track to really becoming a problem and anything that, the, that can be done in budgets now and in future to address that is a positive thing. On energy, you know, what relates to that is the subsidies for energy efficiency, especially in low-income households, electrification of households. These are all good things that won't easily happen otherwise, and it's a good thing to put uh, fiscal resourcing uh, into it. More broadly, we heard the Treasurer speak quite a lot about energy transition, the opportunities that come. What that spells is enormous investment needs, right? Not just renewable energy capacity, but also storage, transmission, uh, the revamp of the public transport system or, well, establishing a proper public transport system in Australia for a start. And a lot of that will need to be funded publicly, um, state as facilitator of private investment, we will need substantial fiscal resources for that, uh, also to support regional structural change, uh, for example. And in order to do that, we have enormous opportunities to harness uh, taxation sources within the emitting industries. And so firstly, uh, gas and coal, of course, these industries will be declining. Um, and, you know, if you, if you tax them more heavily, then you might deter further investment. But ultimately, further investment is not what we need in these industries, right? And so that's a good taxation source. We saw the uh, tax on gas producers increase slightly, um, uh, two billion odd uh, increase over a number of years at the very lowest range of what we are told Treasury recommended. Uh, There's a certain timidity uh, that I suggest goes back to past political experience that needs to be overcome. Uh, also, there's opportunities, of course, to raise money from uh, mechanisms to reduce emissions. You might say we need a carbon tax. Uh, you don't even need to go there. You've got a mechanism now, the safeguard mechanism, that could be turned into a revenue-raising instrument. That needs to be for future budgets. Yeah. Thanks, Frank. And finally, Dr Siobhan McDonald, your expertise is on aid and climate change, land rights and gender. What did you see coming out of the, the budget this time around? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, what we see often in times of fiscal austerity is significant cuts to the aid budget, um, partly because it's seen as very external to people's um, immediate and internal needs in a domestic context. So in that context, I welcome uh, what is a stabilisation of the aid budget uh, at 2.5% annual increase to the budget 
at around, and now it'll be stabilised at $4.7 billion annually um, in the forward, uh, in the forward um, estimates. However, as our colleagues in Dev Policy have pointed out, um, Australia's real aid spend is now ranked 27th or fourth lowest out of all OECD countries. And I think we've really got to think about how that positions us, us as global citizens. And what I really want to do um, when we come back to the second round of commentary is really look at what was one of the headline uh, that came out of the budget in terms of the Pacific Engagement Strategy, which was a $1.9 billion spend. And I'll just drill into that in a little bit of detail because what you really see when you look at it in, a, in much more detail is, is the politics of aid and the fact that Australia is really, um, really using aid and securitising it in very particular ways. Um, so we'll come back to that in a little bit more detail. So I'm just going to ask um, each of our, our panellists a sort of expert question and then I want to open up to, to the audience. So I'm going to, I've just got my eye on the time, so I'm going to ask our panellists to be relatively succinct on what a very complex topic. So let's see how, how we go with that, that balancing um, act just so we can invite the audience in um, to this. Um, Michael, I just want to come back to some of your opening um, remarks and and essentially you were sort of asking us the question, is, is this time different? Are we going to re really see um, change around two of the government's signature budget reforms, the wellbeing, budgeting and evaluation? Um, is it really different this time? Um, well, look, I, I have a, a, a sceptical eye, but uh, one that is also hopeful. Um, so I think what's important in these types of uh, initiatives is to be... I think in a way, and this is, this is what the Treasurer was doing, I think what he was effectively saying was, yes, it's, a, it's about being optimistic, it's about looking at this in terms of significant progress, but it's also having an eye to what's gone before. Uh, yes, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. So the idea that there are lessons to be drawn either from previous experience, and I think this is one of the major flaws that is now coming out in terms of the way the APS tends to operate, which is the loss of institutional memory, learning from past experience, but also looking elsewhere and taking the best from comparative experience. So to put all this into a nutshell, those two major signature uh, uh, budget reform initiatives, wellbeing budget, wellbeing framework and evaluation, there is significant experience elsewhere. There is significant history in terms of policy and procedural institutional development right here in Australia. Uh, so with, for example, um, uh, wellbeing budgeting, we need only look to New Zealand uh, that's been doing this for the last five or six years. Uh, take a look at the Living Standards Framework, which is their version of a wellbeing framework. Uh, yes, it is a very comprehensive measurement and reporting framework. What they do try to do, if you dig in, is that they try to routinize, that is, to make sure that that is incorporated into budgetary and fiscal frameworks and decision processes. That's the key lesson to take out of that. It's great to have a headline reporting framework. It's great to have ever more elegant uh, presentation and understanding of wellbeing, but it actually has to serve a purpose. So one of those purposes is for accountability and I think telling that narrative that the Treasurer was talking about. The other is actually to use it as an information tool to inform decision-making, right? You don't have that, then nothing's going to change. 
The other in terms of evaluation, very quickly, <coughs> is again, take a look back. As I said, 35 years ago this year, we had the evaluation strategy uh, put in place. The steward was the Department of Finance. Uh, evaluation has three main purposes. One is to inform central decision making, so that can be policy and or budgetary. It is to inform better program delivery. Um, and it's also about accountability. Those three things can sometimes, and in fact often, conflict. So that's one of the things you need to be aware of in terms of the design of how an evaluation function can work. Independence is very important. Arguably, though, no evaluation is fully independent. So you have to be aware of how those things, again, fit into structures and routines. So that would be my key message, which is I think they're great initiatives. They are needed. They need to look back and look across. And the important thing is not just changing rules, which is very important in the, in the budget and fiscal space, but actually using that change to change behaviour and change behaviour among many actors across uh, budget and policy making. Thanks. Peter, let's build on this sort of issue around the wellbeing budget. Um, will a wellbeing framework provide us with an opportunity, do you think, to broaden the discussion of the adequacy of social security benefits and help us really to set up for future improvements in that area? Um, well, I think the um, yeah, two areas that the wellbeing budget uh, um, framework um, addresses or potentially addresses are what's happened to inequality and poverty. And so uh, bringing a focus on inequality and poverty into, into um, uh, more into the um, policy discussion, I think, is, is central to... Um, you know, achieving improved well-being. And um, the social security system is, in a sense, our main way of addressing um, inequality and poverty because, obviously, um, we target resources to the poor more than any other country in the world, probably, I think. Um, uh, but that creates this problem of often people receiving social security benefits uh, seen as leanness, as um, uh, Sharon referred to, um, which was the rhetoric of a, one of the previous treasurers. Um, I think that, um, you know, sort of we need to recognise that um, all of us um, experience problems during our lives. Everybody's life starts off in a position of complete dependence, being cared for by our parents, right? And for most of us, we end our lives in being cared for by other people as well. Uh, and also um, the social security system is incredibly important for managing the economy. Um, you know, the, the lesson of the global financial crisis, the pandemic, uh, and what is, is happening in the budget now is that um, this is one of the most, it's not only um, one of the most powerful tools for promoting economic inclusion, uh, it's actually also one of the most important economic tools for managing the economy. So I think that the wellbeing framework does give us that opportunity. Um, it's a question of how it's operationalised, as they say, um, and um, uh, we should look forward with great interest to see what, what, what actually does get measured. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Um, Kristen, in your opening remarks, you stressed the importance of policy evaluation and others have mentioned it as well. Um, one of the new budget measures increased the age of eligibility for the parenting payment single from um, the child, youngest child turning 8 to 14, and, and Sharon mentioned this in her opening remarks, and it certainly got a lot of attention in, in the press. 
um, with your colleague Bob Brunig, you've recently been releasing some research looking at the evaluation of the impact of that policy. So what are your thoughts on this switch in, in the policy yeah. that's come out? Uh, thanks, Janine. Uh, so I'd back up a, a bit in time just for a bit of history to say that uh, prior to the 1st of July 2006, single parents, prim- primarily mothers, could receive this payment till their youngest child turned 16. From the 1st of July 2006, they could only receive it until their youngest child turns 8. But what, we, what, what they did was grandfather a whole bunch of the mothers that were still in receipt of the payment prior to the state. So if you will, for a point in time, you had two groups of mothers who were very, very similar. One group that could continue to receive this payment until their youngest turned 16, and the other who could only receive it until their youngest turned 8. They got rid of that grandfathering in 2013. So my joint research with Bob Brunig evaluated the impact of this change on the outcomes, the employment outcomes of these single parents, again, primarily mothers. And our research showed three things. First, what we show is that uh, a minority of mothers, about one third following this policy change where they were effectively kicked off usually onto New Start, were able to transition out of the income support system and become entirely self-reliant on income from employment. Meanwhile, about two-thirds, so the majority actually continue to rely on income support um, partially or entirely. The second thing we looked at was, okay, so some of these moms actually managed to transition. Um, Were they able to earn enough to offset their loss in income support? And here again, we find that they were actually, on average, worse off. And this isn't entirely surprising because the majority of women, again, remained on income support, now on a lower payment. And finally, the third thing that we show relates to other research done by uh, a colleague, Anne Summers, at the University of Technology, Sydney. And what she shows in the exact same year where where our evaluation ends, that 60% of single mothers have ever experienced domestic violence in their lifetimes. So in short, what we know is the average recipient of the parenting payment single is a single mom who's facing lots of barriers, one barrier of which is likely domestic violence. So I guess to return to the question of what I think about this policy policy change, I most certainly agree with my colleagues that an extra $400 a month will most certainly help these single moms. But is it going to completely revolutionize their lives? (laughs) Is it going to solve the multiplicity of challenges that they're facing, I'm doubtful and suspect there's more work to be done. Thanks. Thanks, Kristen. Sharon, it's been more than 30 years since the then Prime Minister Bob Hawke declared that no child would live in poverty in Australia. Um, But the Australian Council of Social Service Poverty in Australia report that's just come out this year tells us that now one in six children live in poverty in this country. What does the budget mean for children, particularly for those that are growing up in this context? So I think there are parts of this budget that are that are going to make an immediate difference. But I think that the point that Krista made is, is a really important one, that we're seeing some, I guess, some measures that are going to ease things that are applying Band-Aids to very, very deep wounds. But what we really need to do in order to address child poverty um, is to get to, to some of those really deep structural issues. Um, that are that are causing child poverty, and I guess I'd add to to, to one of the points that Krista made that um, we do see that that significant domestic violence package in the budget as well, and I think that's a really important part of this because for so many single mothers, you know, domestic violence is central to the to the experience. Um, so I think there are there are things that this budget offers to children, but it's not child centred. And it's not child inclusive. And this has been something that we see in budgets over time in Australia. We see policy initiatives like childcare being presented as being for children, but actually they're about providing parents with choice um, and they're about labour force participation. Now, that's not a bad thing. 
but that doesn't impact directly on children's lives unless we also think about childcare in terms of the quality and, the terms, and in terms of children's experience and entitlement. Um, what we've tended to see in Australia is a big gap in policy, something of a policy cliff yeah. as children move out of early childhood and into middle childhood and we assume that all the issues that are relevant for children will be taken up by schools. And what we're seeing at the moment is that schools can't cope with the poly crisis that we're facing and the issues that children are dealing with. So I think there are parts of this budget that are really going to help children and support them at the edges, but we really need deep structural changes to make a, a significant difference. Thank you. And a, a quite radical shift in gear. Siobhan, I might come um, to you. We've seen a lot of attention in first year of, of the government on its renewed engagement with Pacific neighbours, perhaps most powerfully symbolised by the very frequent visits by the Minister for Foreign Affairs to countries in the region. Um, what are your thoughts about the budget's contribution to this renewed Pacific engagement? Yeah, um, I mean, the Foreign Minister has visited every country in the Pacific at least once, and I think that has been met with... Um, you know, with real recognition from the Pacific leadership of, of that renewed engagement. Um, I think there's a bit of a mismatch here in what Australia is putting forward as a Pacific engagement strategy and what aspirationally the Pacific leadership might have hoped for. So I'll just unpack that in a little bit of detail. Um, this budget is really about um, the Australian government funding the Australian bureaucracy. So... As you unpack it, um, you're looking at $1.9 billion, which is essentially about money going into foreign affairs, um, into DFAT, and a significant amount of money going particularly into the AFP, um, which is interesting because the AFP has a history of regional policing, particularly uh, in the Solomon Islands during Ramsey. Uh, but that has to be with agreement, of course, of Pacific Island countries. And that's a very uh, bold securitisation strategy of moving into the Pacific. Would, it would have to be with agreement. Um, it's unclear at, at this stage what form that would take. But the budgeted amount uh, is $70 million this year, increasing to $100 million, uh, in 26-27. So it's a very significant allocation of that $1.9 billion. Um, the other component that will be very important from a Pacific leadership perspective will be the commitment to the seasonal worker program, which is incredibly important to Pacific Island countries but has a whole range of complications. Um, there's an additional allocation going into the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations to try and house that program a little bit more in-house and to build capacity internally around it within the Australian, go within the Australian government. Um, to deal with some of the complexities attached to that program. Um, what concerns me about the budget uh, is that I think what we need to think about is that the headlines attached to the budget, budget that went out into the Pacific were $1.9 billion for the Pacific. And so a whole, a whole range of Pacific leaders and, and people in the Pacific contacted me and said, what is this $1.9 billion? How do we get access to it? Where is it? Um, and it's only in drilling down into it do you see that it, it isn't heading into the Pacific, it's heading into the Australian government to manage their engagement with the Pacific, which has benefits but isn't the same thing. What the Pacific leadership is overwhelmingly looking for in the space of security is renewed engagement on the issue of climate security. 
many of the countries that I negotiate on behalf of, particularly Palau, who I've been negotiating for for the last year and a half, are facing an existential threat to their entire future. And they are looking for real and meaningful commitments from the Australian government. They're looking to the Australian government to meet and beat 2030 and 2050 targets. They're meeting, uh, you know, they're looking for real and meaningful commitments in all of these spaces. And they're now looking and drilling into the budget that still includes fossil fuel subsidies, for example. So the Australian government is not meeting those commitments in real and meaningful terms at the moment to the Pacific leadership. And that's the disconnect in that space. Thanks, Joanne. That's a a good transition. And my last question, then I want to ask the audience for their their questions. Frank, the topic of energy got a lot of action in the budget um, and lots of discussion around it and not surprising given the sort of global environment that we're in. Um, Key initiatives included the Petroleum Resource Rent Tax or the PART changes that you mentioned earlier um, and also the $3 billion tax credit for hydrogen production. Um, Is it going to be money well spent? Yeah, so uh, zero emission subsidies there uh, on on the other side of the ledger. So it's well understood now that Australia, of course, has tremendous comparative advantage in zero emissions, clean energy industries and renewable energy and the industries that we could build up and so forth. That's happening in a situation where other countries, and particularly the US, but you know, increasingly Gulf states as well, are subsidizing the emergence of those industries at home. And so that poses that question, what do we do about that? Do we just wait for comparative advantage to hopefully uh, take its path and and uh, and private industry establish these industries here, or do we enter that subsidy race? Uh, the $3 billion in tax credits strike me as a sort of a halfway house there somewhere, keeping the door open. Maybe that's the right thing. And I think we can argue over whether tax credits, in other words, you know, just subsidies really is the right way to go. Uh, in other parts of energy policy, we're now using uh, risk-sharing arrangements, de-risking of private investments, government taking some of the downside, but often oftentimes in turn taking some of the upside, uh, strikes me as a better way to go, um, and crucially puts in place then the levers for future tax revenue, right? And so if we establish the energy superpower industries of the future in Australia, we're going to be doing the, the world a favour, right? But we'll also have local disamenity, right? This intersects with Indigenous rights and practices, usually in negative ways, right? So we need to be conscious of that. There's negative environmental impacts. These are huge industrial installations somewhere where there's natural values, right? What do we get in turn? We need to put in place proper taxation arrangements from the start, and it shouldn't be uh, another, another LNG industry in terms of taxation arrangements. Thank you, Frank, and to all the panellists. So we're open for some questions. We've got a couple of microphones here. So if you've got a question, just um, raise your hand, uh, let me know who you are, and, um, and we'll pick up. Yeah, just one here in, in the middle. Thanks, Malik. And just let us know who you are and who your questions to, and we'll try and keep them pretty, pretty sharp because we've got only a couple of minutes. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name's Charlie. Uh, a question more for Frank, uh, but open to all the panellists. Um, in the Treasurer's speech, a couple themes uh, he mentioned was, um, firstly, a clinging to uh, neoliberalism, and also um, he also emphasised the upcoming wellbeing framework. So in the context of the energy transition, you know, there's clearly a massive challenge relating to, you know, what the future is going to be for uh, especially for parts of Australia where there are 
uh, large fossil fuel industries. And so there's, there's, a, there's a major challenge in terms of what the future holds for those regions. How does that sort of link to, um, yeah, to especially to, you know, the upcoming uh, wellbeing framework and how that narrative for those communities could be framed and also, um, yeah, to how, um, how these communities should really think about the future and what, what awaits them? Thank, uh, Frank, I think we'll just give that one to you in the interest of time. If that's I'll okay. be really, really quick. Uh, Charlie, thank you. So uh, the Net Zero Authority will be grappling with that. So that's an announcement <coughs> that was made just before the budget, a new authority to look exactly that, at the structural change, in particular in fossil fuel heavy parts of, of the country. You'd expect that that will become a distribution of fiscal resources uh, along with kind of helping the, the institutional change along with that. Um, I, I got to tell you, I have not thought about how that intersects with the well-being framework and maybe colleagues have, have views on, on that. We might um, take another question if that's okay and maybe we'll just hold on that one. Um, Melissa? Thank you. Melissa Hitchman, um, doctoral student here at Crawford. Um, this is for Siobhan. Um, thank you. You mentioned the rankings in the OECD. Um, also, the World Economic Forum has uh, ranked Australia. 2006, we were 15th on gender equality. By uh, 2021, we were 50th. Um, and so we've declined in both uh, absolute and relative terms. In the one year that the government's been in place, we've clawed back to 43rd. Um, I'm interested in that, but also what that says about the relative... Um, position of foreign affairs, I know you talked about development, particularly the aid program, but foreign affairs and trade in the Canberra bureaucracy, one thing we haven't touched on today is AUKUS, which of course was a big <laughs> impost on the budget. Um, and defence gets about seven times what foreign affairs and trade does in the budget. I'm interested in your views on, on that and the implications for um, the values that that tells, uh, that that signals to the region and beyond. Thank you. Siobhan, oh, such a great question. Um, we wondered if AUKUS was going to come up uh, and I'm really glad you raised it. I think it was, uh, so I was in Vanuatu after the two cyclones um, as the Vanuatu Council of Ministers was debating the AUKUS issue um, and they asked my advice is one of a whole series of, of experts that they were consulting with on the AUKUS issue at the time. Um, I think this is a very complex signal to have sent to the Pacific leadership with no consultation. Um, so I think there is a very... Um, I think there is a continual conversation that happens over the top of the Pacific leadership where the Australian leadership thinks that it is very strategic to play to allies beyond the region and they fail to observe that we are located within the Pacific. Um, so I'm very supportive, for example, of the idea, and I was discussing this in DFAT for many years, uh, partly because my whole background is across Indigenous Australia and the Pacific, 
around fostering cultural linkages between Indigenous Australia and the Pacific, which is something that's just been launched. Sorry, I'm coming back to your question. Because I think uh, there is a nature to Australia's diplomacy that overlooks the, these possible established cultural linkages and talks often over the heads of Pacific leaders. And AUKUS to me is an example of that strategy. So one of the things that the Pacific leadership are currently seeking legal advice on is whether there are elements of law of the sea that would prevent submarines entering their maritime boundaries, which has huge implications for the AUKUS proposal. And I think um, a little bit of consultation could have helped with some of those issues. The Pacific has a proud and strong nuclear-free tradition and the AUKUS agreement flies in the face of that tradition and is at odds with it for a lot of the Pacific leadership. Um, and that is a huge problem at the moment for a range of Pacific leaders. You will have seen them speak publicly on it. Um, so I might. Sorry, yeah. I just looked at my clock, my watch. Sorry, I'll leave it there. No, that's <laughs> no, that's my fault. Um, I'm really conscious of the time. We've held people a couple of minutes late, um, which is never a, a good idea at this time of the morning. And and you have many places to go. We do have morning tea available and I invite you to stay on and ask questions of our panellists and engage in some more discussion um, with them. But let me say a few thank yous just as we pack up. Um, thank you so much to the Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific, Professor Helen Sullivan, for her introduction. Obviously to the Honourable Dr Jim Chalmers for joining us this morning and also to our wonderful panellists. The, the breadth and depth of this discussion reflects all of the wonderful things about um, the Crawford School of Public Policy and this college that, that we um, are part of. And it's an immense privilege to have come back to the ANU um, in the role of, of director. And it reminds me each day how lucky I am to work with a group of people like this. Um, I'd also like to let you know that this has been recorded for the Policy Forum podcast, which will edit out any umming and ahhing that I did at various stages. Keep your eye out for that. I think we've got a, a pretty quick turnaround um, on this one coming. I'd also like to thank the people that make these events happen, that um, make it look so easy. I'd especially like to thank David, Adriana, Hannah, Dina and Malik from our comms team who did an incredible job um, in making an event happen at this time of the day and a, and a very special thanks um, to Shanti Devi, who works in my office with me, who worked very closely with the Minister's um, team, particularly Barb um, Penny, to, to make the Treasurer magically appear um, at the ANU today, which was done through long negotiations and very friendly um, Canberra diplomatic means. Um, thank you very much for joining us. We hope to see you back here at the ANU um, at the Crawford School again, and please come and join us for some morning tea. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, that was the Honourable Dr Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer of Australia, in conversation with Janine O'Flynn, followed by a panel from here at the Crawford School. We hope you enjoyed this very special set of insights into the most recent Australian federal budget. Do join us next week for our next episode of Policy Forum Pod.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.